In the fourth episode of Humans and AI, I had the pleasure of interviewing Nathan LeBenz, founder and currently AI R&D at Waymark. We discuss Nathan's journey in AI, including his move from CEO to AI R&D at Waymark, and what led his company to catching momentum in the AI space. Nathan also emphasizes the importance of validation when working with AI models. Alongside, our conversation briefly visits the topic of AI as personal assistants or VAs, as well as how AI tools like Copilot are becoming increasingly important in our lives. Awesome, Nathan. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. I have been following you for a couple of weeks now. I think I first listened to the things you had to say on the Moz pod. It's great to finally get a chance to chat with you. And then I knew I had to reach out after you shared that tweet thread about OpenAI Foundry, which I was telling my co-founder for the AI startup I'm working on. That tweet thread was one of the highest value per word tweet threads I've read in a really long time, especially for folks in the AI space. So definitely want to dive into that. But to start, do you mind just giving a quick introduction on yourself and all the cool things that you're working on today? Sure. First of all, thank you. That's very kind. I am increasingly working kind of around the clock on, I'm thinking of myself right now as an AI scout. That's the new term that I'm using. And it really just means trying to zoom out as much as possible and get the broadest possible view of everything that's going on. I think it's basically impossible to get to the point where you have no major blind spots, but that's my goal. Subject to trying to cover as many different angles as I can, especially the topics that just seem most interesting and most important to me. I've been doing that for under two years of really intensive all-in focus on it. Things are happening fast. You have to be obsessed with it to have any chance of staying current. But the flip side is we're all on a level playing field in the sense that you unplug for a little while, you come back, a lot has happened. And then, you know, in terms of like professional work, I am a founder and I was a CEO of a company called Waymark, which is in the AI video creation space. Uh, I recently described as text to commercial, where you put in what you want and then builds you a commercial which uses your assets, uses your branding, your color scheme, your idea, whatever you wanted to kind of communicate. We go out and find your images online and integrate it with the copy, layer a voiceover on there, tie all that together, and then give you like a 30-second commercial that you could even run on TV. And we do a lot of business partnering with big TV companies, OTT companies, social media as well. And I'm starting to like advise some friends, companies, obviously everybody at the same time is realizing, man, this is happening fast. And, you know, it's kind of becoming a priority for everybody at the same time. So I've got other friends who are entrepreneurs who are building all kinds of different businesses. Increasingly, I'm starting to get pinged about, hey, what do you think we should do in our business? So trying to help out as much as possible. I guess the last activity is trying to figure out what my role is in education. The reason I'm doing the podcast that I just launched which we call the cognitive revolution, is to get deep with builders who are working with the latest stuff right now and try to get a sense for what their vision of the near-term future is going to be, what product they are trying to create and how they're trying to you know, change workflows or change experiences. And so I'm trying to collate all that together and see if I can't create a, a worldview. And those conversations are definitely helping to do that. That's kind of me in a nutshell. Wow. Yeah. Are you sure you're doing enough there? <laughs> Super impressive. I love each of those things. But I'm curious like what the motivation was for that move. Why the shift from CEO over to AI R&D? I had been CEO of the company for a number of years. And kind of my last big move as CEO was to push as hard as I could to get the company to go all in on AI as quickly as possible. 
We were not an AI company before, let's say, 18 months ago. I had always had an interest in AI and dabbled in it from time to time. In 2017, I hired a grad student who had published a paper, active summarization. This was a concrete task, means like you're going to restate in your own words, essentially what, you know, the content is. And in 2017, there really wasn't a great way to do that from there to here. Wow. We had largely been building UI and trying to make video creation easy, make it accessible. And certainly users found it to be easy and convenient, but we started to realize it wasn't that they couldn't figure out the tools anymore. It was that they didn't necessarily know what to say. I realized, Hey, we could potentially go from a DIY service to a done for you service powered by AI. I developed these like mantras. One of them was AI beats UI. Our product is a little bit complicated. We do this TV stuff. The specs are very rigid. To run a commercial on TV, it has to be exactly 30 seconds. A lot of relatively tight constraints. We initially couldn't get the few shot prompting to work with the original GPT-3, but when they introduced fine tuning, we put together a data set and we got to the point where it was like, okay, it can work. This is able to respect the structure that we need. That was threshold one. But going back to your question, as the CEO of the company, I said, this is such a big moment in technology. This is the next wave. We need to catch it ASAP. We need to ride it as we possibly can. And I'm basically going to put everything else aside until we have caught that wave and are starting to get some AI specific momentum. I literally even canceled board meetings, created an AI 101 course for everybody at the company. I invited our board members to that. I was like, in lieu of board meetings, we can do this. You can come to our AI 101. We're all going to try to figure this out. And that went on for about six months. And after six months, you basically get to a point where you're like, listen, Nathan, <laughs> like this AI stuff, we're even starting, we're like, we're believing you now. But then people are also like, but you got to run the company. You're neglecting all these other things. At that point, I had to either reorient my time and energy and go back to running the company. I was really fortunate that I had a longtime friend and teammate who had been our COO and our product lead, who was the perfect person to take over. And I, at the end of the day, I was like, I really don't want to stop working on this stuff. I was having more fun doing it. My own personal learning rate was way up. And I was lucky that I was able to indulge my passion and have the right person to hand off the, the running of the business to. And that's super interesting. And I know there's a lot of folks, um, some I've talked to as well, who are in a similar position as you were a few years ago with Waymark, where they're understanding now that AI is just completely transforming every facet of our lives as we know it, they want to get on top of it. They want to follow the trend. Some of them are apprehensive. They think it's going to be another bubble, like the bubbles that they've seen before AI. Although obviously this time, I think both of us would agree is very different. It's a completely different ballgame. What advice might you have for the founders who have use cases or applications for AI that they can incorporate? Yeah, good question. It is very circumstantial. I don't know that there's like universal advice, certainly at the product or the implementation level. The first thing I recommend is just to get hands-on with the technology. Go to ChatGPT. Soon we'll have new Bing much more widely available soon. And I would really try to ground your experience by starting with things that you know about. Validation is really hard with these models if you don't know what the actual answer is. And that can get people into a lot of trouble. I've had this experience where with some of the latest models, I've asked questions and 
gotten responses that seemed like just mind-blowingly amazing. And then I realized later that was totally made up. For example, we ultimately build on top of the Adobe stack. We have After Effects where people really create the leading video content for the most part, certainly with like motion graphics and that kind of thing. We do our work there initially, and then we export it to our web format. And we have a proprietary mechanism for doing that. I was starting to think, is there a way that we could use some of these latest models to generate that underlying Adobe format or do you know some of that transformation for us or just trying to explore it? There's a file format called AEPX, which is the Adobe like XML standard for an After Effects project. I went in and asked, and I didn't really know that much about that specific file format, just that it existed and it represents videos in like XML. So I went and asked one of these latest models to just create me a file. Like I asked for a video in that format containing a couple scenes, blah, blah, blah. It printed something out. It looked like, oh my God, like this is amazing. It's XML, like it understood all my stuff conceptually. But then I, when I actually went to fact check it, it was like, nope, that's not the format at all. It's totally different. So it was like a coherent, but totally hallucinated format. And that just goes to show how easy it is to get beyond your own knowledge and get tricked into thinking that the, the model knows more than it does. I was a graduate, like an undergrad research assistant in a chemistry lab. And I was a contributing author on a couple of papers. So I was asking it questions about the professor that I worked for, like, what's her research agenda now? And give me a pretty good answer was accurate, kind of ask some additional questions. Finally, I asked it, did she ever have a co-author Lebens? And it said, yes. And then I was like, oh, what papers? And it gave me picture perfect citation of a paper with a name that I was like, does that paper really, would, did she add me on another paper that I didn't even know about? It seems so real. And the paper was also like totally hallucinated. Focus on things that you know about that you can easily validate and get a sense for where that line is because they're useful in a ton of domains, but then they also fall down pretty catastrophically if you get beyond what they actually know. And that, that is hard to detect if you're out in, a, in an area that you yourself are not comfortable with. So try to understand that in your own space, and then you can kind of imagine how it applies to other spaces. Just try to figure out what they can do for you. So many people are looking for shortcomings, and they're abundant. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. But AI has changed my workflow. I'm coding a little bit less recently than I was like over the last year. I was doing quite a bit of coding. You know, when Copilot goes out, I feel it. And when I want to have some code written for me, whether it's ChatGPT or now like experimenting with new Bing or Claude, it's undeniably super useful in that domain. Look for things that it can actually do. Think about tasks. Don't think so much about like full roles. It's quite smart in some ways. It doesn't make mistakes. It doesn't know anything about you or your context or what exactly you're looking for. It needs very explicit instructions. And it really benefits from a couple of examples of a job well done. I'm finding myself saying this more and more. I'm very skeptical of analogies. I think they easily lead us astray, but sometimes we need them. And it is a useful analogy, I think, to think of these models as akin to an intern coming in with that kind of like eager, wants to work fast, wants to do stuff, but really needs the instructions, really needs the context to give you work that you're going to be happy with. I found one of the things that you just said there really interesting where you said that if Copilot goes out, you would really feel it. And it makes me think of the canonical question for identifying whether there's product market fit as to how disappointed a user might be. The survey question, how disappointed might you be if this service didn't exist? And if you look at it from that lens, it's almost like these AI tools, they've reached not product market fit, but almost like product lifestyle fit. They've just 
established enough utility where you would be extremely disappointed if they didn't exist for folks that use them every single day, like yourself and like myself. Totally. We even had one of the upcoming podcasts that we're going to release is with Arvind Srinivas, who is the CEO of Perplexity. One of the most interesting things that he said at the end of the conversation was they only have eight people on their team. They have, for my money, the leading AI-enabled search experience online today. Obviously, a very competitive space. They'll have to continue to work hard and fast to keep that leading position. But he said, with eight people, we can get a lot done. We don't need a marketing person. We use ChatGPT for that sort of thing. So the people that get it best and are using it most efficiently are starting to say things like that. And that really takes people back a little bit, but it's hard to argue with them because they are doing a great job and the product speaks for itself. Totally agree. And so you gave some great advice there for folks that are just starting out on their journey to implementing AI into whatever business it is that they're working in. For folks at Waymark or for companies that have already deployed AI capabilities into their business, where does the challenge lie from there on out? Is it more of the evaluation piece? I know you mentioned in your article that I'm going to read it here, quote, the AI product paradigm will shift from one that delivers a response and puts the onus on the user to evaluate and figure out what to do with it to one where AIs are directly responsible for getting things done and humans supervise. And you call that the great implementation. Are you starting to see that already at Waymark as a company that has deployed AI capabilities? Is it becoming more of just evaluating, supervising, and optimizing the AI models now? We are not yet in a moment where people are just supervising. We're on that path, but to be clear, we do not have access to the products that the next gen robust fine tuning is going to make available. We are fine tuning models and we've put a lot of work into dialing in their performance. Probably been through 20 generations of fine tuned models over the last year and change and probably have fine tuned another 50 different models for auxiliary tasks, processing. There's a lot of steps that we have been able to quickly spin up an AI to do in a very sort of narrow focused way. When I think of that great implementation, I really think of like narrowing and tailoring. Right now with the base product, ChatGPT, it's this you know, incredibly diffuse thing that kind of handles anything and everything you might throw at it. Even though the Waymark commercial writing AI is built on the same technology, it's been fine-tuned to the point where Really, no matter what you ask it, it's going to answer in commercial form. <laughs> like, it, that's all it does. It spits out commercial scripts in the proprietary format that we have defined for it. And then that can be watched in your web browser. We are in the quality spectrum. I think we're to the point definitely where the video you mentioned from Riley and a couple of things that I've posted on Twitter have gotten enough kind of traction and wow reactions from people that I think it's safe to say. But we're at a, a level now where people are legitimately impressed by what comes out of it. And they're like, wow, like that is pretty good. Just yesterday, OpenAI announced another big item with a 90% price reduction on their latest model. So all of a sudden it's like, geez, maybe we should start just generating multiple different things. Our one fine-tuned output costs X. For that, I think it would be 60 generations with the latest, cheapest model. That's too many to even watch. I don't think people can handle 60 generations, 
But there is now this kind of trade-off where it's like, we've got this one thing dialed in. Is that the way to go? Or is it, should we just throw more stuff at people and let them watch and rifle through until they find things that they want? If you're not excited within the first three to five seconds of the commercial, like just forget it, just move on to the next one. I think that's where we're headed because the generations are just getting so cheap. I appreciate that. And so when you say that, it's so much cheaper to just generate a ton of examples rather than fine-tune. Are you implying that fine-tuning is going to become less important in the future and it's going to be more on the onus of users to figure out what they like, what they don't like? Or is it that we're in this interim time period where we can throw a bunch of examples at users, maybe collect the data as to what's working, what's not, what they like, what they don't like. And then eventually once the cost of fine-tuning models goes down, then it may be reasonable to just feed all that data back into the system to fine-tune models to get a little bit more pointed as to the recommendations and suggestions and final product that's being presented to users. Honestly, I think all the pricing works. It's more a matter of price discrimination to some degree on OpenAI's part and also figuring out where you want to live on the continuum of more generations, but maybe lower consistency or lower reliability versus higher price point and an ability to really dial it in. It was still pretty clear that like, the fine-tuned one was best. Six of the lower quality with 002 didn't add up to one of the fine-tuned because we really are just trying to deliver the best thing that we can. And ultimately, all these costs are falling, right? So our other costs, I think, are going to fall too. We have costs for voiceover. We have costs for image understanding in a couple different ways. All these prices are falling. And if you are running a banking call center, it's like an order of magnitude cost reduction relative to employees, human employees, to allow AI to run conversations. It might even be two orders of magnitude, depending on exactly where it all sits and like how much of your dedicated compute you can use and all that kind of stuff. I think ultimately you're going to see everything. For people that really care where consistency really matters, where you really need to dial it in, the high price is not going to be, generally speaking, a barrier. But for things where it's copywriting, testing, iterating, then sure, you throw up 50 examples. Jasper, I've, it's been a minute since I've used Jasper, but they give you five examples of things. Like they might give you now 15 examples of things. They're going to be asking questions, not like, what does this cost us? But more, at what point are we just overwhelming people with content? Yeah, yeah. The, the quality versus quantity is, the equation's different, it seems like, for everyone. And it's changing, seems, every couple of weeks as well with the fluctuating changes in the prices, just the differences in the quality of the model. So that was super interesting. Again, the tweet thread that you dropped, I think, is a must-read for anyone that just wants to get some free alpha as to, in the AI space, just get an idea of where we might be headed. If you don't mind just sharing, like what was the motivation behind putting that three tweet thread together? And just like a general overview of your thoughts on the Foundry announcement and details that were presented. Honestly, to some degree, just figuring it out. I've obviously got Waymark and I mentioned working with a couple friends, companies and trying to be a strategic advisor to them. People have been speculating about GPT-4 and it's obviously it's a topic of keen interest. When I saw this, I was kind of like, this feels like a big deal. A couple things immediately jumped out to me. One, like the robust fine-tuning. Right now, you can only fine-tune DaVinci Classic. Like the original GPT-3 is what OpenAI has available for fine-tuning for at least public users. Obviously, in the context of a partnership with Microsoft and others, they've given deeper access. But if you're a, a retail customer, what you can fine-tune is DaVinci. So they have not allowed for fine-tuning of Instruct models or the 003 or ChatGPT, nothing else like above that is fine-tunable. So to see this thing drop with 
oh, they're going to introduce it with robust fine tuning as the starting point. That was like a significant update to my thinking. I think it makes a lot of sense for them for various reasons, which we can get into. That was really the beginning, just trying to figure it out, trying to make sense of it for somebody who I'm trying to help and taking on a little bit of a life of its own as I did that. Yeah, just a real quick summary that I wrote. GPT-4 is capable of economically valuable work in corporate settings and OpenAI's upcoming robust fine-tuning product will kick off a great implementation, which will see jobs decomposed into tasks that AIs can do. That last part is probably the part that kind of had most people thinking the most, I would guess, even fine-tuning earlier models. We've had some really gnarly tasks that we needed to do to like just process our own training data. That's honestly been a big part of it. How do we get our training data into a state where it works? So we can have a starting point and then we have a certain business profile and then we have a final result that they made. There's your training data. Great. If you do that, you find that you inadvertently encourage a lot of hallucination because the users end up putting stuff in the final video that wasn't in the profile, that wasn't in the prompt. And so now if you do a fine tuning with that data set, you are teaching the AI that, you know, it's okay to make up a phone number because from its perspective, there was no phone number in the prompt. So we had to go through a lot of different little tactics to figure out how do we clean our data set so that we're not teaching it to do that? What do we want it to do instead? But one first version was like, just put like a placeholder. Don't put a phone number, just put like phone number here bracket, and then we can sub it in later or we can prompt the user to sub it in. But now how do you get all your training data into that form? So we would go through this process of, okay, the task is we have all these videos. We don't want any phone numbers in there. We don't want any websites. Your options are either sit there and do it all day yourself or go try to hire somebody on an Upwork or a Mechanical Turk. You've got reliability problems there. It's by no means like going to be 100% accuracy if you ask people to do that. You're going to get all kinds of stuff. And then the option that we ultimately go with for these kinds of tasks now is to train a fine-tuned model to do it. So we sit there and do usually 20 is the first batch where we'll say, all right, you have some examples. So 20, grind it out, do a good job on 20, go slow and focus on quality. Use those 20, run a fine-tuned model, come back, see how well it works. Now the next bench, the next like level usually is like a hundred. And you're also going to see which are the things that it's still not getting. And you can correct that. And you can maybe also add a few more examples like that to reinforce your training data set. You get up to about a hundred, run it again. Next thing you do is often it works at that point. You're basically done. Like we pretty consistently will see at or even like above human level reliability at that point. Typically, if you're getting to a fourth or fifth iteration and you're getting hundreds of examples, if the, it, you're, something's not quite right, either like the task isn't narrowly enough defined. We've seen a couple different things where we sort of had a weird structure that we didn't realize was leading the AI astray. And now we sit there with something where it's okay for a penny or whatever. Anytime we need to do this again in the future, we can just do it. And we don't have to go subject to availability of the contractors. It's, a lot of times it's not worth it. It's a lot of times for us, it's incremental. Some of the processing we do is like when our creative team makes new content, we like run it through some various like tagging and kind of computer vision to understand. They just make, and then the AI helps us understand what it is in a couple different important ways. Sometimes it's just one thing, but it's 20 things. Oh God, am I really, I got to go hire a contractor to just for such a small thing. Like it's, it doesn't really work that great. 
but the AI is just there. We can call our fine tune model and often we do get, cause it is often a while you'll get the initial error. This model is still being loaded. Two minutes later, it's loaded and you can call it and you may only call it three times if you have three new things that you want to do, but it's so easy and it's so cheap that we've, I think at this point we have something like 50 of those little models. Not all of them we use all the time. They're all in model zoo that we can go back to and be like, all right, few new pieces of creative have launched. We need to run through this machine and get certain metadata or what have you. So that's what I think is going to happen a lot. There's just going to be this kind of, what are the tasks that we do? Can we define them? Do we know what good looks like? You may think you do, but a lot of times it's a little more subtle than it initially appears. There's implicit knowledge that the humans are using here that we can't really count on the AI. So we either need to make it explicit or we need to have a slightly different strategy. But you know, that it's the changing of work to take advantage of AI that I think people are really underestimating. And if there's something that I've done that informs my worldview most, it is just doing that a lot over the last year. And it can be done in a lot of different areas. So interesting. And do you imagine that with the release of Foundry and the creation of a tremendous amount of fine-tuned models for solving a tremendous amount of very specific tasks, do you see there being just one model to rule them all? Do you think that this is a way for OpenAI to really just build up some incredible economies of scale and just run away from competitors and just be able to get the long tail of tasks? Or do you see a different dynamic playing out? Yeah, really hard to say. I do think, especially the combination of the high-end foundry pricing, which the very best, most powerful thing they're offering starts at a million and a half a year. That's a GPT-4, it's called DV on the thing, pretty clear, whatever, it's the next gen model. And that's a 32,000 token context window because the biggest out there right now, mostly are 4,000 with the code models and Claude, or you're getting to eight, but jumping up to 32,000, know, that's a big expansion. But then on the other end, you've got the really low price, general purpose chat GPT API that can serve probably 95% of use cases. So I, I think one thing they're definitely doing as far as I can tell, extremely well, is price discriminating. They are figuring out how to give a huge population of people what they need most of the time in a way that's that they have a pretty good handle on what it is. I think at this point, they're pretty confident that ChatGPT is not going to mess up too much. It'll hallucinate like mistakes, but it's not going to do really bad things that they really don't want it to do very often anymore. And they're going to astroturf the world with that. They're now cheaper than any competitor that I know about by a lot. And they're kind of blitz scaling the low end. And then on the high end, it is, we kind of talked about earlier, like it is worth it for people to pay up where they need the reliability. That's where kind of corporate customers are going to just flock to this, I think. I think, again, I think it's both. Like it's, there is a one model to rule them all right now. I think they just launched that yesterday in the D3.5 Turbo. It's going to be hard to compete with that for others commercially that are not operating at the same scale. It's going to be hard. All of a sudden you're thinking like, how am I going to recoup my large model training costs if I'm anyone else? If I have to compete at this pricing and I don't have the mega scale that OpenAI already has, the path to like getting into the large kind of foundation model provider or winner's circle just got a lot narrower with this price reduction. So in that sense, there is this kind of one like retail kind of base model to rule them all. I think that they're carving out that position. The narrower models are going to be more powerful. And I think that is really smart too. They're pushing for AGI. The trends are the trends. I'm also like actually pretty concerned about the long-term safety profile of all this. It does not seem to me like we can take for granted that it's all going to go well. And 
I'm not, I'm honestly quite like ambivalent. Like I'm, I love the technology. I'm excited about it. I also do have a certain, I would say healthy fear of where it's all going. So with that in mind, I think it is a really good idea that they try to deploy their most powerful models in ways that are more narrow, narrowly tailored to a certain company, at least a certain customer, a certain use case. Coca-Cola, which has been announced as one of their early flagship partners, they're known as a company that takes their brand extremely seriously, obviously. I know a friend of mine started a company that ran My Coke Rewards for them. And the requirements that they put on that company, first of all, you're never going to work with Pepsi and all that kind of stuff. That's like table stakes. I believe they had to have like separate teams, separate physical spaces. Like they had a certain divider in their office layout where it was like the Coke stuff was over here. And if you're not on the Coke team, you don't go in there. They take it extremely seriously and they're going to be very focused on making sure it is under control. And I think in that way, this is could be seen ultimately as a masterstroke in that if you can satisfy Coke and their reliability requirements, you've made a pretty good advance from the sort of wild west of chat GPT. I would get guess this year we are going to see thousands of those things, hundreds at least from major companies, but probably thousands, you know, a million five, all the money getting thrown into AI these days. If you just raised a series A, one five to get the single best model in the world with robust fine-tuning capability, it's going to be probably a pretty easy decision to buy for a lot of people. And Sam Ullman has talked about this a little bit too, right? He said, it's not going to be one AGI, it's going to be multiple AGIs. People are sometimes accuse him of wanting to build a god. This is almost like building like a Hindu sort of temple of a thousand gods that are all going to be a little bit different. They're all going to be powerful, but they're all hopefully going to be reined in at the same time. So it'll be fascinating. I'm obviously speculating here quite a bit. And again, I should give you the disclaimer, which I did on the Twitter thread. I don't really have any inside information about this. My business contact at OpenAI gave us a no comment until we're ready to talk about it. So I, I'm sure you know that I'll be proven wrong on some aspects of it. But overall, it feels pretty solid that, again, it's going to be both. We're going to have the, the one big retail thing that's going to be everywhere. And then you're going to have these kind of even more powerful, but narrowly tailored and focused versions that are going to start to come up as you interact with all sorts of different companies. Well, thanks so much, Nathan. That's so insightful. Really appreciate everything that you shared there. Yeah, it's all good. 